Father, I want to thank you for little Abraham, how he's willing to get up and sing such a great and honored song. We ask that you would honor him through this effort and use him as he grows to be a witness for you. And we'd request the same for ourselves as we continue to grow in the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, and in the scriptures that you would use us as well, that you would open the doors, that you would give us the opportunities, that you would help us not to be sedentary, but be active in our faith. Father, we thank you for the Apostle John and his writings. We ask that they would stick with us, mature us. I pray that we could digest it easily, but we would also go home and meditate on it and use it for our benefit. For this is what you desire. So with your help, Lord, we'll do this. In Jesus' name, amen. The little epistle of First John, Second John, and Third John, we're going to tackle those. Uh, we're going to spend one week on First John, and then we have Palm Sunday, and then Easter Sunday, which is coming up right after that. Now, the epistle of First John, you know, if... If I wanted you to know something, or if you found out about something, for instance, I like all kinds of food. I like Italian food. Italian food is wonderful. Same thing with Mexican food. It is just wonderful. I could eat all kinds of it. And what if you had never heard about Italian food? And I made a trip to Little Italy in downtown San Diego. And I came back to you. And I said, you've got to experience this place. This place is fantastic. They have linguine. They have al dente pasta. They throw it up against the wall. The sauce is just fantastic, almost like Papa Joe's. And you can throw it all over the spaghetti and the meatballs that are there. And the pizza, it's fantastic. Not only have I seen it, but I have tasted it and I have held it in my hand and I've actually gotten some of the mozzarella there and it is so good and I'm just telling you this I am proclaiming it to you you need to go to little Italy if you do this you will be blessed now if I said that most of you in here I think might say okay I can do that I can go to little Italy right well, in the epistle of John, 1 John here, John comes along and he says, look, from the beginning, I want to tell you about something, something that I have seen, something that I have heard, something that I have touched, and I need to tell you about it so you are not misunderstanding what God's will is. I need to tell you this. So it, it, the flavor or the tone of the letter is, you've got to know this stuff. You need to be secure. You need to understand, and specifically, the reasons for this letter are spelled out in a few verses, why he wrote it. And the first one is that they might have their joy complete, or he says that we might all have our joy made complete. Once you went to Little Italy, if you tasted all that, you could walk away saying, I am truly satisfied. I am walking away. My belly is full. I am happy and content. Time for a nap. 
you know, is what you're going to do. And so he says, I'm writing you this letter so that our joy or our joy collectively might be complete, that you might be satisfied. You might be able to walk away and say everything is good. If you relate the Christian to sheep, you know when sheep are happy and when they're content, right? Because their ears are down, their head is down in the grass, and they're just chewing away, right? Or they're sitting in the grass, and they're looking up, and since they chew the cud, they're just chewing on the cud that they have. They burp it up, chew it, swallow it, burp it up, chew it, swallow it, just like a cow. And they're content. And that is John's desire for all of us, that you are content and full of joy in your salvation. And that leads to the other two things that he says in first john chapter two he writes these things that we might not sin and also in first john chapter five he writes these things so that we might know that we have eternal life so those are the three things it is written that we might have joy and that we might not sin and that we might know that we have eternal life that is the purpose of the letter now before we get into this letter I want to remind you of something. The job that I do here, I'm supposed to be bringing you God's message. That's why we go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, so we don't miss it. We don't miss any of God's counsel, the full counsel of God. These are the last three books I have to go through before we get through the New Testament a second time in 24 years. It has taken 24 years, 12 years on average, to get through the entire New Testament. And this will be the second time. As I deliver it to you, you are going to have a reaction as I read it to you. The reaction, usually, it should result in a sense of humility. Not because I am bringing down the hammer on you. It's not my job to yell at you and beat you up and hit you with the rod and say, get over there, what do you... It's not my job. That's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to just let you know. But when I do that, some of you will be offended. I'm going to point out in here what it means to be saved because he delineates several things. You can know that you are saved if this is the case. And he names several different things. We went through this in the youth. And we wrote them all down. We saw what the epistle says. And if I say these things you're going to start judging for yourself, well, am I saved? You're going to hold up the scripture, you're going to look at it and say, does this apply to me? And if it doesn't apply to you, or if you say, well, why is he telling me that? Why, why is he saying Well, it's because it's in the word. And by the way, the word, the gospel, it's an offense. It's not something that, it's the good news, right? Well, it is the good news for those who are perishing because they can get saved. But on the other hand, it's a big offense because it points out everything we're doing wrong. And so when I explain things that we're doing wrong, I say this is wrong, there's an offense taken if the person is involved in it. Uh, I'm going to go through a list, just a few things. If I talk about abortion, people get offended. If I talk about homosexuality, people get offended. If I talk about AA, people get offended. If I talk about N.A., people get offended. If I talk about greed, people get offended. If I talk about sexual immorality, people get offended. And so I have the unenviable position of telling everyone what they're doing wrong. 
and I'm part of that everyone. I should actually be sitting right here listening to myself talk. And I could do that with a mic and I could just keep on talking. I say, oh, Lord, this, this is hard. This is difficult. The point is, when that happens, you can have another reaction. You can have the reaction of, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. Yes, this is wrong. And then you go and you fall to that same sin the next week. And when you do, that's where God's grace comes in if you are saved. You turn to God and you say, God, I thank you for your grace that you forgive me. On the other hand, you can point your finger at me. And you can say, I don't like what you said. And I'm going to tell other people about it. How dare he say those kinds of things? And that goes with the course. If you're a teacher, at some point in time, you're going to enjoy that kind of fellowship. It just comes along. Now, John, in his letter, he's a little more lighthearted, but he is attacking what is known as the Gnostic heresies. There's several heresies that the Gnostics had, but you ever hear about the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, those types of things? Well... A Gospel of Mary. I think there's a Gospel of Mary out there. They were called the Gnostic Gospels. And they were creating a lot of error inside the church. And so John, in a nice way, is coming along and saying, you are wrong. Now imagine being in a church and you're a proponent of the Gospel of Thomas and you say, oh, this is great. By the way, I believe that's the one that's a misogynistic gospel that treats women like dirt pretty much, and that's why it didn't make it into the canon of Scripture. But when it came to the Gnostics, there were people inside the churches that were going around saying, this is true. You know, the first heresy was not that Jesus was God. It's that Jesus was not a man. That was the first Gnostic heresy. And so John, in response to that, writes this little letter. He also writes in the Gospel of John who Jesus is and clarifies him there. But this, that was written much earlier. This is written towards the end of his life like the book of Revelation. And so when this stuff comes out and he brings this information to the church, there are going to be people in the church that are going to be offended. You really don't need to point at me. We don't really need to point to John. It's you point to the word and you say, is this true? Rather than walking away and being offended, you should just say, is this true? Is that what is being said? Now, if I bring it across in a way where I am offensive, I would seek your forgiveness. I'm not supposed to do that as well. But there is a time for admonition, a time for rebuke, and a time for instruction. And so as we go through the word here, you need to let it sink in to the soil of your heart and let it bring forth fruit. And don't immediately poo-poo it and put it off to the side and say, I don't like the one who told me that. Just if it is true, it's kind of like if the shoe fits, wear it. Whenever I get into the scripture, I get it first. I have to put those shoes on and go, oh, man, this is tough. But he writes this letter because he wants their joy to be complete. He also wants them to avoid sinning and that also they may understand that they have eternal life. Now, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 says, that which was from the beginning. Now, just reading that, where does that take you to in your mind? The book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. And he says here, that which was from the beginning. So he's going all the way back to before creation because the word beginning is before creation. 
Well, so everybody in their mind, especially the Jewish believers, they're going right back to the book of Genesis and they're planting themselves there because he predicates what he's going to say next on that beginning. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. So he says, I have heard that which was in the beginning before creation. Kind of like, I've gone to Little Italy and I've experienced what's there and I have heard about it. He goes on to say, which we have seen with our own eyes. You have seen the restaurants. You have seen the food. You have seen the people sitting down at the tables. John has seen Jesus Christ. He is the one that goes back to the beginning, the word of God who spoke into existence creation. That's what he's referring to here. He's saying that, wow, this is... This is the testimony I'm delivering to you, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. So that which was in the beginning, obviously to the Jewish mind, they would say, you're talking to us about the creator that has been made manifest and that we have touched or that you have touched. So that's what he's referring to here. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And of course, Jesus is the living word who brings us life. And he says, verse two, this life appeared. We have seen it. We testified to it. Now he could easily put in there, this life appeared. We have seen him and we testify about him. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now, this is where Jesus is given a title. He is the eternal life, which means he has always existed from everlasting to everlasting. Just because he got a body doesn't mean he was created or transformed at that point from something that he was not, that he did not exist. He has always existed. He just took on the human nature at that point. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And I'm just going to finish this chapter here and go back and comment on it. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. So, backing up just a little bit, he makes this proclamation and he says, I proclaim, or we proclaim this three different times once in verse 1, once in verse 2, and once in verse 3. So, he's making a declaration that they have heard, they have seen, they have touched, and now they are testifying to this. And what he's saying, the way he set this up, is this was not an apparition. An apparition where you're standing there and this cloud kind of forms together, you know, and you, oh, what is that? You see these spooky videos where, 
well, there was a facial recognition in the dark over there. And what was that? You know, it was something strange. It wasn't like that at all. Jesus Christ came in human form. This was not some cleverly concocted story. It wasn't a fable handed down from generation to generation. It was not an epic. An epic is where you take several different figures throughout history, those who have done good things, and stick them all together into an epic figure, and you call him Jesus. Like, for instance, the epic of Gilgamesh, if you've ever heard of that. Gilgamesh is not a real person. He is a compilation of several individuals that was made into a a personified individual. It is not just simply a concept. It is the person of Jesus Christ that he is referring to here. And he says that this fellowship is possible with each other and with the Father and with the Son, who is Jesus Christ. And if you have that fellowship, your joy is made complete. If you are outside of fellowship with God, you will never have the joy. Now, I want to separate joy and happiness. Happiness is something that you get because of what happens, right? Happiness. You say, hey, that that was good. That was fortuitous. That was serendipitous. That was something that was to my good fortune. And when it happens to you, what do you say? Woohoo! Yeah, it's, it's great. Patty and I went to the boardwalk the other day, and we were riding our bikes down there. First thing she finds is a pair of sunglasses, she goes, look what I just found. And she got these and she put them on and it's like wonderful. And so we're riding along. We start taking off and I stop immediately and I look down and there's this nice Gerber knife on the lawn with money right there. And I look around. I go, quick, before anybody sees it. No, I, I, I just saw it laying there all by itself. Somebody was going to pick it up and I go, wow, I'm really sorry for that guy who lost that nice Gerber knife, an expensive knife. But you know... You look around, nobody's there. Okay, so I picked that. It was serendipitous. I was at the right place at the right time. Patty was at the right place at the right time. We stopped and had lunch. We were at the right place at the right time. It was all good. It was one of those wonderful things, and we were happy, happy. We were riding the bikes and happy. You know, it's just going, going along smooth, and the, the breeze was out there, and the sun was out, and it was just a fantastic time going out there. But that is not what joy is. Joy is something that is not contingent upon what happens to you. Have you ever seen people that just, they end up going through something that is a horrendous trial, and they walk away going, well, praise the Lord. And you go, are you serious? Well, yeah. Hey, man, it just means, you know, I'm going to be out of here a little bit sooner. I'm not going to have to stick around. Yeah, I got some health problems, and I get that. I understand. I was asked today, how are you? I said, I'm good. Every day that I'm not six feet under, every day above ground is a good day. And then Mike said, well, I have to, what did he, what did you, what did he say, ruminate? Oh. Ruminate. I have to ruminate on that is what he said. Which means, if I was six feet under, it would be a great day, right? It's not something that I have to lament. It's like, ah, oh, it's a great day. I get to go to heaven on then that day. And so that's the joy that you have that is separate and not contingent upon those things that happen around you. You know, you look at the world. Isn't the world a great place right now? You know, I look out there and I just go, wow, it's fantastic. Putin's coming across. He's threatening everybody, even up in Denmark. Said, Denmark, if you get that 
global uh, missile shield. We are going to consider your ships a target for nuclear war. Wonderful, you know. And and then he, uh, our administration talks against Netanyahu, and that's God's people over there. You don't want to miss with God's people. And you look at that and you go, wow, this is great. Why is it great? Because you know all these things must come to fruition before the Lord comes back. And so you have this joy. And people look at you like, are you crazy? You think this is good? Well, no, it's not good for the suffering of the people. Don't be misled. But it is good. There's this deep abiding joy that, wow, just these things are lining up. And the Lord's setting things in motion. And it may be closer than we actually think. And so we have this joy that we look forward to, that we hold on to, that abides with us no matter what the circumstances. Now, he goes on to say, we write this to make our joy complete. It's a collective hour. And that is the purpose of the book. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, if you took every word literally, you would say that Jesus is just light, that he's not a person, that he is this ethereal nebulous being which is out there that comes like a mist and it is glowing everywhere, that type of thing. That's how you would take this if you took it literally. This is what is called metaphor. He's saying Jesus is light. Now, what is he referring to when he says that Jesus is light? God is light, and in him there is no shadow of turning. Well, what he's talking about, everything that is good, everything that is knowledgeable. For instance, when you open up a book and you have a light on it, you get knowledge, right? When you open up your life and you shine God's light on it, you go, ooh, that's not so good. And that's what God being light is, and that's what he does. If we are in the light, there is no more darkness within us. If we are not in the light, if we are not in his exposure, if we are not basking in his word, we are in darkness, which is just the opposite, which is evil and foreboding and judgment. And so we are encouraged to come into the light, and Jesus is this light. Jesus is this one we turn to, and he judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. In John chapter 8, the same author writes, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So he was this divine being, and the rabbis understood this as well, that this is a characteristic of the supreme divine being. And so if John is saying Jesus is the light of the world, he's saying that he is God. That's what he's proclaiming. That's what they would have understand or understood at the time this letter was written. If somebody tells you Jesus is not God, they clearly don't understand what was written and to whom it was written at the time it was written. Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. In other words, if we claim to have fellowship, yet walk in intellectual and spiritual darkness, we are simply lying. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, again, this is, this is symbolic. Walking in the light. The light is the truth. The light is what is right. If you're walking in what is right, you are abiding in Christ. You are abiding in the truth. This is opposite from walking in darkness. Now, 
What do people do at night that Scripture says? Can you think of one thing? Sleep, yes. People sleep at night. Well, what do they do that's evil? I think sleep is good. Unless you get too much, then it's not so good. But he says people get drunk at night, right? Scripture says that. And so if you at night get drunk, and see, here's one of those things that I could talk about this, and somebody says, well, I drink. You know, I have a little bit, and you know, I may get a little, t- why is he telling me that? It's, look, it's not me, all right? The, the scripture says this. I'm just pointing out to you what the scripture says. And you'll hear from the background, kill the messenger. No, it's, you don't have to kill the messenger. It's just what scripture says. Scripture says people get drunk at night. If you live in the darkness, I mean, you know, the, the clubs around town, we go down, Patty and I, every once in a while to downtown San Diego. And we'll go to a restaurant down there. There's a lot of restaurants in the gas lamp area, a lot of Italian restaurants, a lot of different ethnic restaurants and hot dog places and hamburger places. It's just a good place to go to go get a a decent meal. And when we go down there, usually we finish our meal and we'll finish, you know, maybe 7.30, 8 o'clock, 8.30. We'll walk the streets a little bit. We'll go into an art gallery or something that's there. We just kind of hang out, walk around downtown and then as it gets later the people in number increase and it's just like they start filling up the streets it's like water rising and all of a sudden all these people are everywhere and they're waiting at the doors to get into the restaurants and people are trying and the later you stay the higher the tide of people rises and it's like are you guys up to good deeds this evening and it's not so much i don't think you know, uh, we walked by this uh, one bar and they have um, this mechanical bull in there. And it's kind, of, uh, it's kind of entertaining, you know, to watch the people get on this mechanical bull, especially after they have had a couple libations and they get on there and it's just, you know, they get spun off like there's no tomorrow. And they get up and they stumble out of there and it is... On one hand, kind of comical. On the other hand, it's sad. It's sad to see that that's what life is all about. Living for the night and getting drunk and getting on the bull and getting thrown off of that. Have you heard the past few months people have been getting stabbed down there and beat up? And you know, one guy was just beat up, a homeless guy, and he was left unconscious on the sidewalk, and they picked him up and... You know, it's just a a sad existence to be in that. Well, God says, if you are participating in that, then you are walking in darkness. Verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in us. But I'd like to digress just a little bit before I get into that. He says that if we have fellowship, if we are in the light and we walk in the light, we will have what is known as koinonia. It is a Greek word. And what it means is we share all things in common. What that means is, for instance, in this church... For those of you who give money to the ministry, you drop it in the agape box out there, 
we use it to minister to those inside the church and those outside the church. And we have this in common where we pool our resources so that we might reach other, others which are out there. We have also in common that we get together and we worship and we sing songs. We have in common also that we have conversation, that we sit down and we talk about the scriptures, that we pray together, that we have just normal conversation, that we are part of each other's lives. And God commands that all Christians get together and have this fellowship in common. If somebody is out there and says, I like to just be a free spirit, and I go from the Presbyterian Church to the Catholic Church to Calvary Chapel to Seven to the Baptist Church and Seventh-day Adventist, and I just like, I have eclectic taste. Error. You're supposed to pick one place. Pick it, get to know the people, fellowship, have koinonia, share everything in common. If there is somebody in need here, somebody wants to move, what do we do? Get all the trucks together, get everybody together, and we move them in one load. Remember Mark? We moved Mark. How many people were at your place? 30 people. And how many trucks? Like six trucks? Didn't know a single guy could have so much stuff. But, you know, we, we moved him in just one shot. It was like we showed up and everybody's going, what is going on here? All these trucks pull in. We had this in common. We help each other out. That's what fellowship is. If a person says... I don't need that fellowship stuff. I'm going to show up on Sunday morning and that's it. What? You're not experiencing fellowship. Uh, to give you more of an idea of this, when I first got saved, I was so on fire, I was catching people on fire, but not in a good way. You know, I, you're going to hell! And they go, what? And they'd be offended, you know, especially my family members. And then I softened it a little bit. And I learned a little more scriptures and tone and tack and that kind of thing. And I just couldn't get enough. I was like a dry sponge being thrown into the lake and the lake would disappear and the sponge would only be this big. You know, I, I would just, I got to have more. I would listen to every single message that I could. I was just like into it. I was like, it was like heroin. You know, I was going, I need more. I would tighten my, you know, the strap and I would just shoot up more gospel. I'd shoot up more of the word. I'd shoot up more fellowship. I was going to church four days a week and it's like, don't you have another day that we can be at church and, you know, we can get into this? And so that's what I was doing. And then I started volunteering to say, we need ushers. I said, I can do that. I can usher. And I would start ushering on the inside and I learned the ropes for ushering. And then they said, do you want to work outside? And I go, uh, but I'll miss church. Yeah, but brother, you can't get better fellowship than watching the parking lot. And I go, really? And they go, yeah. And now I worked with two guys who were Navy SEALs. And they, they could kill you with their bare hands. And I was just a little guy. You know, and they would be out there. They, these guys were just huge. One guy's name was Mike. His name was Mike Charbonnet. He became Mike McIntosh's personal bodyguard when he needed it. And the guy was like seven feet across on his shoulders and his waist was about three inches. You know, he, he was just like Stretch Armstrong. And we would get out there and we would talk, and another guy named Conrad, and we would talk about the Lord in the parking lot. And I was more blessed serving in the parking lot, watching the cars and making sure that everything was going okay than I was inside because I had that personal koinonia. And then I remember helping out in the uh, Sunday school at La Mesa. And they had this 
thing, and maybe we'll install it here one day, where the parents had to help every fourth time. Because, you know, getting teachers in Sunday school, it's, it's tough to do that. And so they started this program. And they did it at Horizon 2 when it was Calvary Chapel, San Diego, and we had to do that. And I would go in with those little kids, and we served several different times where they would do that. And I got in there, and I was more blessed serving those kids than I was listening to the message. I would walk out of there just hopping like this was great. And you know, you teach little kids. You know how little kids pay attention to you if you got their attention? Their mouth is open and their eyes are wide. (laughs) Especially if you're descriptive on how you teach the little kids. And then they walk away and they go, Mommy, look what I drew. What I learned. What'd you learn, little Tommy? Well, you learned about the Noah's Ark. And they start talking about that. And they just have a great time. And you know you've actually done something, right? You've reached out. You've had this fellowship. You share with what you have. You've given it to another. And it's more blessed to give than to receive. If you don't do that, you're going to walk around kind of like a, a wet rag. You're still a rag and you got the Holy Spirit in you, but you're kind of like, you know, okay, I'm really not experiencing the full fellowship that I need. And that's the point of fellowship, sharing everything in common, doing stuff for other people. I'm telling you, it just, it excites you to no end. It gives you this sense of satisfaction and joy. When you pull back, it's going to be noticeable. It'll be noticeable in your attitude and the way that you conduct yourself and what's taking place and the world around you is not good. When you're feeling down especially, like I walk up outside and Mike says, how are you? I said, I'm fine. He goes, no, how are you? I, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm all right. And so if I wasn't all right, he's forcing me to be all right. Aren't you good? It's great out here, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's good. You know, and, and that's how it works. If you don't fellowship, then you're just going to be like, well, half-hearted in your walk. You have to have the fellowship. If you go back to the book of Acts, it says that the things that they had in common, the things that they shared was prayer, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and what's the last one? Apostles' doctrine. They studied the word. They got into it. They understood what it said and were able to apply it to their life. They had this communion, a common bond. It speaks of a living, breathing, sharing, loving relationship with another person. Now, as a pastor, the temptation is to take out the rod and go around to each sheep and say, what are you doing? And if they go, nothing. As the pastor, you want to say, bend over. You know, that's, that's, what you, that's the fleshly response of any pastor who is out there. But you have to resist that. It's the Lord that spurs the person on. We simply provide the instruction, say, this opportunity awaits you. This is what you should be doing. If you do this, you will have this deep abiding joy which will be there. Otherwise, you know, trials come along. You don't have anybody to fellowship with. You're, you're not involved as far as the church. You haven't gotten to know the people and you're going to spend eternity with them. He says, make sure you have the koinonia. Make sure you have the fellowship. That's why in leadership, I tell uh, anybody that I talk to that is serving in a capacity that you should be the first to arrive, the last to leave, that you should show up, you should have fellowship with the individual. Don't say why you don't need to be here before the worship starts. 
That, now, I, I get it. Mom's with kids. <laughs> you're preaching to the choir on that. I get it. Or if you're uh, having a fight in the morning, uh, a marital fight, you know, I know it never happens on Sunday morning. And, and you arrive at the church, and then you've got to put on your smiley face. I'm just fine, right? I get it. I understand that. But the idea is we're supposed to be moving forward. Now, John chapter 2. No, I'm going to go back and talk about if we claim to be without sin, but I am out of time. So my encouragement to you, and we'll pick this up in three weeks. My encouragement to you is be in fellowship. Know what you're supposed to be doing according to the scripture. Be involved in prayer. Be involved in the breaking of bread. If we have a potluck, you should be here. We want to resist how much we eat, but we want to eat. We want to fellowship together. If we do that, we will have the abiding joy, and that's why John writes this. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to be happy. He doesn't want you to be down in the doldrums, so to speak. And by the way, I use that uh, in the past. The doldrums is the area of the equator that sailors used to fear because what happens is the wind at the equator, it swirls. And they can get in the middle of the eddy that is right there, that swirling air, and it will be completely calm. And they can't get out of it until the wind shifts. And so if you get in the doldrums, is what they used to call them, you would just hang out at the equator, in the water, not making any progress. So if you're down in the doldrums, all you need is a fresh wind. And the Lord will come along and he'll provide that wind. He'll put the wind in your sails and you can take off. All you have to do is ask him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us instruction how we're supposed to live as believers so that we might have this joy, this deep abiding joy. And as we get into the rest of the scripture, you know that or we know that this is a warning on how not to sin, how to avoid it and how we might know that we are truly saved. And Father, as we go through this word, help us not to take an offense, but help us to have our hearts molded, that we'd be humble before you and look to you and not any one messenger, that you are the one that provides for us the direction, the light, the way. Help us to walk in that. Help us to abide in it. In Jesus' name. Amen.